Please be seated. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 23 this evening. That's on page 758 of your church Bibles, uh, if you have one. So again, last week we looked at the first half of this chapter, which was the journey of, of the Magi, who, uh, who, who came from the east. They, they saw the star in the sky, placed there, of course, by God. They were uh, astrologers, men who looked at the stars to try and find uh, what they had to say about, about the world around us. And God, through his grace, placed a star in the sky to, to lead them to Christ Jesus, their Savior. But along the way, they met, of course, Herod, uh, the, the cruel, uh, desperate ruler of Israel. Uh, and Herod, of course, told them when, uh, after stopping uh, to find out where the Christ child was, Herod told them, when you find him, uh, come back and tell me where he is so that, so that I can go and worship him as well. And of course, the, the Magi were told in a dream to not to, go, not to return to Herod because Herod had uh, evil intentions towards Christ. And so of course, they, they, they slipped off in the night uh, and returned to their, their country another way. And so then we pick up in, in verse 13 of chapter two uh, to learn what happens next. And this is God's word. Now, when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what this was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to jo Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. Now there's a glaring question that I think often gets overlooked when we look at this, this particular passage. But it's, it's there, it's staring us right in the face. Why would a high Roman official want to kill a baby born in a stable in a small town like Bethlehem to a poor carpenter and his wife? What did Herod possibly have to gain? Well, the answer actually provides us with a bit of an apologetic as to, as to who Christ is. Last week we saw that, that the Magi, these travelers from afar, recognized who Jesus, who Jesus was, and actually ch it changed their lives, didn't it? We see uh, the, in, in the Magi human nature under divine grace. These men who, who are called by grace to come to Christ and put their faith in him. Herod likewise recognizes who Jesus is. But rather than worshiping him, 
and submitting to him, he seeks to have him killed. Now last week we, we saw him plotting to get further information from the Magi upon their return to Jerusalem, only to have them uh, return home by another route. Now this should get our attention, shouldn't it? All of the eyewitnesses at the time, all of the, the earthly authorities from the Magi to the scribes and priests to Herod himself, recognized something in the child. Now, furthermore, this incident, this, this massacre of the male children of, of Bethlehem would provide a, a historic anchor point for Matthew's gospel. This would be an unforgettable episode, something that everyone would remember probably for generations. Even, even decades later when Matthew uh, wrote his gospel account, people would have recalled this incident and could testify to the truth of what Matthew had written. In other words, if, if what Matthew had written here was, was untrue, somebody could have, have spoken up and challenged it. So as we come to this passage this afternoon, we should recognize the, the unity of the, the message of the eyewitnesses to the young child, Jesus, and let that challenge our own assumptions about him. But more than that, we should notice what this passage has to, to teach us in our modern day. And there's three things for us to see this evening. First of all, the hardness of the human heart. Secondly, the limit of earthly power. And third, the, the revelation of the third human. So first of all, the hardness of the human heart. If, if last week we saw the human heart under divine grace, then, then today we, the, we see the human heart left to its own devices. It's shocking what we see in Herod, isn't it? He is a bloodthirsty maniac out to maintain his power at all costs. And again, it's significant that he doesn't write off this child or the, the prophecy surrounding him as silly folklore. But rather, he doesn't want to take any chances. He will maintain his power at all costs. So after realizing the Magi were not coming back and, and had escaped to another, uh, by another route, Herod does what any power-hungry person would do, doesn't he? And he has all of the male children in Bethlehem killed. That's a difficult thing for us to contemplate, isn't it? Infanticide. But there's a very clear and dire warning here for all of us. Frederick Bruner says that the theological lesson in this is, is, is that those who, who begin by hating the child, that's Jesus, end by hurting children. Hating revelation leads to hurting people. If people will be ungodly, then they will be inhumane. Herod is the gospel's earliest evidence of this. I don't know about you, but I find that to be an absolutely stunning quote. But an excellent summary of the whole point of Herod. When we reject the word of God, when we refuse his grace in Christ Jesus, then we aren't simply left adrift, but we in fact allow ourselves to be subjected increasingly to our sin nature. The sin nature so blinds us to our own evil that we often think we're doing good when in fact evil is flowing from us. And here's what I mean. When we, when we look at this, this account from Matthew's perspective, the one before us today, we, we can say objectively that, that this was an evil thing that Herod did. And we can say that because it's, it's presented this way to us so clearly. But what if, what if we were in Herod's position? What if you were a powerful official in the Roman Empire and you hear about a child that is, is rumored to be the fulfillment of prophecies long held to be true by the local population? 
and that this child was said to be the, the true king of the Jews. Wouldn't you consider that a threat if you were in Herod's position? Wouldn't you perhaps be justified, obligated even, to maintain power at all costs? If the Magi prevented you from, from a, a targeted strike, then there has to be a bit of collateral damage, doesn't there? Now, I hope we all know that this kind of, of reasoning is, is wrong. It's, it's flawed. It's, it's sinful. It's, it's whatever you want to call it. And that, that I hope we also realize that it's used in our world every single day to justify things that, objectively speaking, are unjustifiable. And that, that's in part Matthew's point, that when we reject God's word and his grace, then the world begins to break down further. The fact is that we see that even in our own culture and even in our own lives, don't we? This is where I get controversial, but hear me out. We are Herod. If you can't relate to Herod, then you, you don't understand your own heart. And what I mean is that, that you and I spend most of our days trying in our own hearts and minds to, to justify the things we do, often based on our quote-unquote good intentions. But some could argue that Herod had quote-unquote good intentions, the emperor of Rome, for example, might have thought that, that Herod did a good thing. What we have to recognize is that, that evil runs through our good intentions and our bad intentions. That if we aren't looking outside of ourselves for truth and for righteousness, then we'll end up committing unspeakably, unspeakably evil acts, or at the very least, remaining silent while the Herods of the world do our dirty work for us. I'll give you a modern example uh, two weeks ago, I, I signed a letter written by, uh, by a number of evangelical ministers in this country to Liz Truss, who's, who's both the, the foreign secretary and the, the secretary for women and equality. And this letter was speaking out against the, uh, the current uh, version of, of legislation seeking to ban uh, what's called conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy is a, is a rather opaque term, which which has no uh, agreed-upon definition in, in either medical or psychological journals or practice. But the good intentions of the government's legislation is to ban practices like, like electroshock or, or other physically violent, quote-unquote, therapies that, to be honest, some well-intended Christians at times practiced, but that we ourselves as a church would condemn. You see how how careful even those of us who, who want to follow Christ and be obedient to his word have to be about our intentions. But the reason I signed this letter is the, the problem with the government's legislation is that it could potentially ban uh, me as a minister and, and us as a church from holding the biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman, which is the biblical view to, to which we as a church subscribe. And this legislation would make it harder for us to, to speak out against harmful practices like, like gender hormone treatment in children, the thing, things that have been proven to be harmful and cruel. It would make it potentially illegal for me as a minister to say things as, as basic as, God is the God of our biology, and he made each of us according to his wisdom and desire for us. And he made us men or women, and he doesn't want us to change that. And in this letter I signed, we, we made clear to the government that, that I and these, these ministers are, are willing to be criminals for the sake of the truth of God's word. And this passage illustrates exactly why that is. 
Because no matter our intentions, when we reject God's truth, cruelty is inevitable. Because even our intentions are blinded by sin. And that was true in Jesus' day with Herod. And that's true for us today in our modern enlightened world. Now let me add two things regarding this example. First of all, I'm not trying to suggest I did something particularly noble or bold. I was not a leader in writing this letter. I wasn't intelligent enough to write this letter. I simply showed my support by, by signing the letter on, on behalf of myself and this congregation. Second, no matter where you are on, on same-sex attraction, uh, transgenderism, or, or any of the other hot-button issues of the day, uh, you're warmly and lovingly welcomed in, in this church. Here at Grace Church, we, we do not affirm individuals, and we do not affirm sin, but we do affirm God's grace for everyone who seeks him. And we want to be a church where you can experience that grace and that love. And sometimes that's painful. Often that's painful. I've experienced that, that pain in my own life and, and dealing with my own sinful desires and sinful actions. But we're here to love you as Christ loves you. And we're here to walk with you as, 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 as we struggle together to live in the light of God's truth and grace. And for that to happen, we have to, in many ways, suspend the definitions of, of love and acceptance that our cultures have put on us. Sometimes well-intended, perhaps, but often with a driving agenda. And we have to submit ourselves to the Word of God and to the child, Christ Jesus. Lastly on this point, I think it's worth recognizing something that, that's already starting to appear in the life of Christ. And that's the suffering. The suffering that's coming. We can already see the shadow of the cross present in the life of Jesus. For the moment he entered our world, the authorities and the powers of this, this place were prepared to kill him. And they were seeking his life. And the fact is that's the whole reason for his coming. To live and to die and to rise again for us. And even from birth, the world recognized this. And the evil ones sought to destroy him. But the second thing we see this evening is the limits of earthly power. See, there's a, a few things we could say on, on this point. First of all, notice how God's plan appears to be thwarted to everyone but God himself. We see this clearly in these, these three fulfillment quotations in verses 15, 18, and, and 23. Joseph is warned in a dream to take Jesus and Mary and to escape to Egypt to avoid the upcoming terror that Herod is about to unleash. They essentially become refugees. Now, usually refugees feel quite defeated, don't they? They feel vulnerable and broken. They're on the run to a safe country to avoid persecution and death at the hands of politicians in their home country, this little family. But notice in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt I have called my son. See, the son of God living as a, as a refugee was actually part of God's plan. And Herod and the other earthly authorities couldn't thwart it, but in fact unwittingly played their parts in it. And we'll see why in a moment. The second quote we see is in verse 18. Herod is, is committing infanticide against, uh, against the young males in Bethlehem. But even this was part of God's plan. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this is a, a quote from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15, where, where the mothers of Israel refer to as Rachel mourned for their children carried off into captivity. And Matthew is using it to, to give voice to the women of Bethlehem who lost their children to Herod's evil and his tyranny. And he's showing here that, that God's plans are, are not thwarted, even though they are painful for his people in that moment. That he knew this day would come. That he has tenderness and, and sympathy for those who lose their children. He would, in fact, lose his own son. But not yet. Now, the third thing we see in verse 23 is the, the return of the family to Israel and set, settling in Nazareth, that, that the, the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And taken together, these, these three points serve to underline the limits of earthly power. It looks like Herod's going to win, doesn't it? Herod may, may appear to be an all-powerful tyrant, but his rule is not unchecked. It only appears to be. The God of the universe is at work in his world, and he's frustrating the plans of, the evil, of evil for a single and simple purpose to right the wrongs wrought by sinful humanity. We see the ultimate check on Herod's power in verse 19, where where Herod dies. Herod can cling to power. He can kill for power. He can raise up armies and and wreak all kinds of, of terror for the sake of power. But ultimately, he ends up where all of us will end up, dead. Human power and authority is far more frail than any of us wish to believe, isn't it? And Matthew actually underlines that point for us here. Matthew challenges us on where we look to for our hope and our help. When we have a problem, who do we, who do we look to for, for our help? Actually, a, a better question is, who do we complain to when we have a problem? Well, we complain to the government, don't we? We want these, these powerful people to have the ability to make our lives right. Don't we? When viruses hit, we want the the government to protect us from it. When life is inconvenient, like when there's there's rubbish strewn about the streets, we want the local council to send people to clean it up for us. When people are disorderly, we want the police to come around and and tell them off. We want these human institutions to, to fix things for us. And there's some, that, some things that, that we, we should expect them to fix. But, but if we've learned anything from two years of pandemic, there's some things that, we, that, that they can't fix. There's some things our, government, our leaders in, in, in government are not competent to fix or to control because no human authority is competent to control them. Pandemics are one. Weather would be another. There's loads of them, aren't there? There's plenty of things beyond human control. Where do we turn to? our help and our hope. You see, when people, lose, when people lose hope in a God who is at work in the world, then you tend to end up with a country like ours, where we end up in arguments and fights over contrasting visions of reality in the future, where, where well-intended legislation has unintended and unjust consequences. That can be discouraging for us and for for some even depressing or anger-inducing, which is why the child, Jesus, is such good news of great joy. In the child, Jesus, we see real hope enter into our world 
And that hope cannot be stopped by Roman despots. That's who Matthew reveals to us in our third point this evening. Where we see the revelation of the third human. We've seen humanity under grace with the Magi last week. And we've seen humanity unchecked in Herod. Last we see humanity restored in Jesus. There are two themes underlying the the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. Chapter 1 is pointing to the divinity of Jesus. Chapter 2 is pointing to the the humanity of Jesus. Brunner says that that Jesus represents both humanity and great lowliness and God and great fidelity. That's a brilliant understanding of Jesus. He's the third man, the one that, that humanity desperately needs. For the Magi, he's hope and salvation. For Herod, he's he's a threat and ultimately death. What do we see in Jesus? We should see a child walking the path that God's people walked 1,500 years earlier. The path to Egypt and the path back to the promised land. This together with the fulfillment quotations we looked at earlier would, would have been deeply significant to Matthew's original audience. It would be like a, a flashing neon sign pointing to Jesus and saying, here he is, the new Israel. Here is the God-man. The person we're all meant to be. The one who's going to restore us to what, who we are, who we should be. All the circumstances around his birth and early life point to Jesus as, as, as one who is wholly unique in our world. Because he is the man we can never be in our own strength. Left to our own devices, we are Herod at best. But Jesus is someone new. Someone that our world hadn't seen before. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people. He is the one who can even, as a child, can, can walk the path of God, that God's people walked. The path of slavery to freedom. But when Jesus walks it, the world takes notice and all the people of the world are invited to follow after him. What do we see in Jesus? Well, we'll see him, we will see in him truth spoken like it had never been tr- spoken before. We'll see healings and miracles unexplainable by even modern wisdom and knowledge. In short, we'll see God's new exodus unfolding before our eyes in the weeks ahead as we continue in Matthew. And as we look at the one who came to set captives free from sin and death, who came to lead us to the freedom and peace long promised by God to his people. How do we get there? How do we follow this third man, this God man, this Christ? We do as the Magi did. We come to him and we lay our treasures before him and we lay our, our worship before him. We do as Mary and Joseph did and we allow him to lead us wherever he needs or wants us to go. If you've been reading through the uh, Sinclair Ferguson Christmas book the church gave you for Advent, then you may remember uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he said that it appears that, that Joseph is, is leading Jesus. That as, as a baby, that a, a baby must naturally go where his, his father leads him, where his parents take him. But what we actually see as we look closer is Joseph being led by Jesus through the revelation of God the Father. Did you notice that as we read through this passage? We see it here, don't we? In, in verse 13, when Joseph told in a dream to rise and, and flee to Egypt, 
with Mary and Jesus. And in verse 14, Joseph does just that because Joseph is led by Jesus, not the other way around. We see it again in verse 20 when Joseph is told by an angel to return to Israel. Joseph being led by the Holy Spirit, by God the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly, in fact, what the calling of the gospel is for each one of us. To lay aside our own cares and our own ambitions. To leave behind the power this world has to offer. To forsake our our good intentions and recognize the destructive power of our sinful hearts. And in repentance and faith to turn to Jesus and to allow him to lead us all of our days through this broken world until he leads us to eternity with him. Let us pray.